Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we discuss European culture journals and their remaining relevance. Plus, we discuss the second edition of the Monocle Companion with Monocle's editor, Josh Fanat. The book features 50 essays for a brighter future. We will listen to some of them. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show talking about the second Monocle Companion, our paperback featuring 50 essays for a brighter future. The first one did very well with its lovely, flickable paperback format. Monocle's editor, Josh Fanat, joins me in studio to talk about this project. Josh, always a pleasure to have you here on the stack uh, to talk about one of my favorite Monaco products, I have to say. And I'm, I'm being honest here. I know I like all of our products, but the Monaco Companion, the first one was a big success, right? Uh, we have the second, the Monaco Companion Part 2. But first of all, tell us about the concept. It's a paperback. It was a new thing for Monaco when we released the first one, right? Can I tell you a secret, Fernando? Please. I think it's my favorite product as well. Oh, amazing. It's not that, it's not that I don't love the magazine, but um, putting together the monthly magazine is a certain discipline and there's a repetition that needs to happen through brand for a magazine that's coming up to 16 years old there need to be things that are similar across issues and there need to be things that change abandoning that for a new discipline as you say a paperback format driven primarily by print no photography in this just illustration was a new challenge and our creative director Richard Spencer Powell really went back to the idea of what a paperback should be it should be intriguing it should be tactile and just everything I think I said this about the first companion which the companion two mimics but just the space of the margin is exactly the width of a human thumb and that's so you could hold it in one hand if you're on a lounger if you're on a plane this is a product designed to be read, to be devoured, and to be enjoyed. And we've also left a little bit of white space so you can go um, writing things in the margins after the 50 essays inside inspire you to a brighter future, which is sort of the jumping-off point for the second issue of The Companion. Which is slightly different from the first one. That, that's something quite interesting. Of course, they have, they're very similar in format, 50 essays, but the other one was to improve your life, and this one is looking ahead to the future, right? So when you were compiling the list, how did you want kind of the breakdown of stories to be. Well, it's a good question. There's a lot of serendipity to how the answers come across to, you know, how you fill this thing of 50 essays. So when we did the first one, it was the result of, to be honest, months and months of thinking about what a great summer read is. Should there be some excitement? Should there be some fiction? Should there be moments of high and low advice on what to do and how to live? And also just a couple of escapes and great bits of writing by people who you just want to hear from. There was a different structure and it was done at a different time of year. The Monocle Companion 2, 50 Essays for a Brighter Future, was done at a time when we were thinking about the forecast issue of the magazine, when the year was kind of turning its head. We were looking back on 2022 and ahead to 2023. But Monocle's house view is to try and be optimistic, to try and be proactive and to try and make changes and also to kind of see the see the fun in the world, see the humour, see the wryness and give some ideas that would give people genuine cause to change their life for the better. So as we kind of 
delve into the issue. I wanted there to be things that were approachable for people. So I, I you know, I scanned the issue here. We've got Hamish McRae, an excellent, excellent British economist and writer, to write about the world in 2050. And he talks about the fact that China probably, if you look at its demographics, will not be the most important superpower in the world and maybe we should be looking to India. That's a great insight. He also said that when you look at the population boom in Africa, you see that a lot of middle class professionals are moving to the UK, the US, Western Europe for their education. And just by the fact of these demographics shows that, you know, Europe may be struggling, there may be a cloud of recession in the air, but the demographics over the next 30 years are sort of in play now. We know who people are, we know where they might be in future, and although we can't predict a war or we can't predict the next iPhone or piece of technology, we kind of can see certain things about the future, and right at the other end, there's an amazing essay by Hannah Lucinda Smith, our Istanbul correspondent, about the importance of gossip, how it ties neighbourhoods together, how in the area of Istanbul where she lives, all of the street cats have names that people know about and you're only initiated into the neighbourhood even as a British expat living there once you name a cat and that name sticks. She's making a very specific observation but she's actually talking about something much bigger which we really need to think about in the future which is community. How do you build a community? And a lot of it is built invisibly and the idea of using gossip as a way of telling the story is really what I wanted for these essays. They're smart, they're clever but they're super readable as well. And no matter how light the essay no matter how light the topic, they're always very important. There's really something behind. I love the whimsical pieces as well. There's one uh, by Sophie Grove, which we'll be listening in a bit. Houses that speak, you know, she's talking about those kind of the return of those houses with a little bit of character, not just kind of those cold minimalist houses, which, you know, they have at their place as well. But I really enjoyed that one. I enjoyed yours as well, Josh. Oh, we'll come on to mine in a yes. second. But so Sophie's one's a great example because... You know, the political and the personal, you know, these big terms. And, mm-hmm. you know, whenever someone says something like the political and the personal, I, you know, I want to fall asleep. But what Sophie's done there is woven a narrative about postmodern housing, the interesting vernacular, the idea of having a laugh of it, being funny of it, being symbolic and kind of bringing that back. And, you know, we all know what a modernist house looks like. We all know it shoots well. But is it time for there to be a bit more personality? Should we be paying attention to the seasons? Should we be getting out of a world of, you know, importing what we think things should look like because we see them in magazines. Can't really say that in Monocle, but I can certainly say that in a paperback. It goes from the home to why you should start a business. There's a postcard for, uh, from an incredible novelist in Ukraine. There's an essay about night swimming, why we need to fix the building industry. A real hodgepodge, but you mentioned my essay, Fernando. Yes, I let's don't, talk about your essay. I don't believe you've read it. I did. I did. It's all about start a new habit. And and I completely agree with you. I think it's good for our brain. And But, I mean, you, you can tell us a bit more. You don't necessarily need to change all the habits, but it's good, you know, to keep keep on your tracks. Well, so. I, th- I think the idea of starting a habit is something that everyone sort of confronts maybe mm. at the end of the year and everyone thinks about periodically. But the idea of changing the world... That's kind of a big habit to shift, isn't it? And that takes all of us to do it. So what I wanted to do for the final essay, number 50, is to show that to change the world, you don't have to move the world, you don't have to do these incredibly big things. It can start by a little shift in your perspective. It could be raising your chin a few degrees upwards and looking at the sunrise instead of the muddy ground in front of you. And there's obviously a metaphor there, but all of these essays are like that, you know, I'm not saying every single architect and builder can build the perfect community tomorrow. I'm saying when they're drawing up the blueprints, they should think about it. And the idea of the essay, 
was to just nudge people, just do one thing differently today. Maybe do two things differently tomorrow. Maybe go back on the third day to what you did. But this all came from a conversation I had with a, a neuroscientist at a Monocle conference who was one of our speakers, and he said, to keep your brain healthy, the best thing you can do is alternate your walk to work, to take mundane, boring things that you do every day where you go on to autopilot, and to just do them slightly differently. And that, you know, that really got me thinking, and that, that stuck with me. Not only because I do alter my route to work occasionally, so I'll never, I, hopefully I'll never be kidnapped, people won't know where I am, but... Um, also that like little changes in perspective are things that we don't do very often often we say he's on the left i'm on the right i'm on the right he's on the left let's call the whole thing off but actually what we need to do is meet in the middle compromise change our mind sometimes admit when we're wrong and that starts just with this openness this elasticity of mind and a perspective to just change our habits and it doesn't need to be a big thing it could be a little thing I, I like that and Josh finally I mean we were talking I mean we spoke about the success of the Monaco Companion but tell us I mean because it was actually quite a successful thing for us and of course when we launch a new product sometimes we don't know the reaction right but that's why we have the number two here and we said we both said that it was our favorite products what can you tell us about the business side of course you you can't reveal all the numbers. I can't reveal all the numbers, but as this is the premier print industry review, mm. I think it does make sense to talk about print as a medium. We have been to many advertisers many times over the years, and Monocle has always been alluring to advertisers because of its consistency of tone, because people trust us and hopefully know the quality of the thing that we publish. In recent years, obviously, there is a balance to be struck between doing things digitally. We have a digital newsletter. You, you know, people who are listening are listening to an all-digital medium in terms of radio. But there is a funny shift back towards print. It was an excellent year for us in print last year. And when we had this idea of doing a paperback, we'd often kind of just mention it in meetings or, you know, it was kind of known to people around the brand. And a number of brands came to us and said, oh, my God, that sounds so modern, <laughs> modern and interesting and novel and clever. And we said, oh, it's a, it's a paperback. And they said, well, you know, I think that's how we could talk to our audience. I think that's an interesting way for us to um, make and leave a mark in a world where digital vanishes so quickly and where people read so much on their phone that it actually becomes a more premium product when you devote your time to it and when it's not clicking and beeping and distracting you and answering your emails as well. So... We found a sponsor, very luckily, for the first companion, and very quickly we found a, a sponsor for the second companion, which meant that a lot of the costs of printing and distribution were covered in advance and takes a little bit of the pressure off selling on newsstand because, as you know, the newsstand's not a particularly healthy place. It's not that there aren't great magazines, but a lot of the infrastructure around distribution is getting harder and harder. Luckily, we're trying to do our best in that regard, and we're holding our head very high and, and kind of flying that flag. But the amazing thing about The Companion is it's a profitable print product that we're able to put on the newsstand. We're proud of. It's thoughtful. It's fairly high price point, but I think completely worth it for 50,000 words of original reporting. It's £20. It's on newsstand, and I can say with some confidence to anyone thinking of starting a magazine that it is possible it's possible to do a great magazine it's possible for the quality to shine through and it's possible for it to um, be a profitable and uh, rewarding endeavor which is always the message here on the stack surely and well talking about the stack as well i have to point out to essay number 33 as well by jeremy leslie why magazines matter i thought you were going to do a shameless plug for your own essay maybe Fernando. maybe i will maybe i'll play actually me reading the essay about the power of fm we should, which is we, another thing that i love we should do that but also jeremy leslie's essay is a, is a wonderful example as well it talks 
talks about how he worked in magazines for many years and how he saw a niche for displaying them beautifully and for creating a, a place in London, a shop where people could mingle and see things. Again, like all great essays, it tells you a big thing. One man's story, success, he loves magazines. It tells you a little thing as well. A lot of people who look for creativity online end up in the same places, looking at the same things, having the same likes and experiences, following the same accounts on social media. A magazine is one of those rare places where often you can reach information that's harder for other people to reach. You can seek things out and you can seek out often more satisfying, more interesting and more original ideas than you'd see on your phone. So Jeremy Leslie, doing a great job there for, for the magazine industry. Thank you very much, Josh. Time now to listen to some of the essays, in fact. We start with Monaco's executive editor and editor of Confect as well, Sophie Grove. I recently spent a sunny morning sitting on a crescent-shaped banquette in the living room of the Cosmic House, a West London home built by the polymath Charles Jenks, alongside his wife Maggie Keswick and the architect Terry Farrell in the 1970s. The lemon-yellow seat was built into the arc of the Sundial Arcade, designed to catch the light and follow it. Flick a switch and the vast pane of glass opens to the elements, catching London's elusive rays. Jenks was well known for defining the tenets of what became known as postmodernism. His own house was a riposte to the earnest dictums of the modern movement and designed to speak like a language. The cosmic house is laden with symbols and allusions to metaphysics, geology and astronomy. The cantilevered solar stair in the middle of the villa features at its foot an Eduardo Palotsky mosaic, a black hole, and includes 52 steps, one for every week of the year. The project also sought to playfully catch out its critics. If you can't stand the kitsch, get out of the kitchen, he said, in reference to his own which is painted to look like pink marble. While I admire the intellectual rigour and ideas behind his house, I was relieved to leave behind the Trump law in decoration and step out into the sunshine. But the cosmic house has made me realise how our domestic spaces are mostly divorced from big ideas, grand statements or gestures. Why shouldn't a house speculate on the universe? Why shouldn't our living rooms pay homage to the vernal equinox? or reflect the months of spring. Humans have long aligned their architecture and ideas to the movements of the sun and the planets. It was commonplace thousands of years ago, but for many reasons we no longer find it necessary or feel their pull. Perhaps this is down to the modernists whose wipe-clean, form-fellows function, straight-line impulses largely purged our homes of Victorian allegories of spring painted onto fireplace tiles. Or maybe it's because we no longer rely on the seasons in the same way. Perhaps, like the seasons themselves, we're bound to repeat the dance between adornment and abstemiousness, abundance and Spartan restraint. Surely there's a middle ground, though. A place for curiosity, whimsy, humour and symbolism in our lives, even if we are more partial to the clean lines of Mies van der Rohe than the business of a William Morris print. Something as simple as observing where the sun rises in your garden or where the light might hit a sheltered corner at a certain time of day shores up your sense of a bigger world out there and your place in it. Our homes should be conduits to nature. Our ambitions might pale into comparison with the Jenks' Holland Park home, now a museum, 
but we can all, in some small way, attune our everyday spaces to remember the universe. The truth is, we can all have homes that speak and tell stories, filled with things that we love, that ground us, that speak to our experience and fuel our sense of curiosity and fun. And why shouldn't we think of the way the world is turning on its axis as we spin our salad for dinner? Thank you very much, Sophie. Let's move on now to our design editor, Nick Muniz, who wrote an essay on Whatever Happened to Humor? Comedian Shaparak Kosandi recently told a UK newspaper that the fear of being cancelled will be the death of stand-up comedy. Dramatic? Perhaps. But I can see the serious side of things. Established comedians such as Christina Padzitsky or Jimmy Carr can continue to make edgy jokes about race and gender. But Corsandi's words ring truest in the less visible corners of the comedy circuit. The smaller clubs where less established names and rising talents cut their teeth. I know this firsthand because, for my sins, I've gigged as a stand-up comedian in Australia and the UK for the past decade. I've felt the fear and spoken to people who feel the same. The ease with which an audience can take issue with a joke and quickly upload a video or post a half-heard comment without the context of the room has created an environment where comics are hesitant to experiment or fail. There are stages on which it feels that material can't or shouldn't be tested on merit for fear of causing offence. This is a key tenet for freedom of speech more broadly, as well as a killer punchline. This culture of fear is problematic for the industry because comedy, like journalism, is a medium that can't be practised in isolation. In fact, stand-up comedy is built on failure, crafting, redrafting and revision, whether that's jokes or the retelling of various falls from grace, misunderstandings and misjudgments. Comics need an audience and real-time responses to know what is funny. The most wry, creative, clever and witty lines are often forged in moments of risk, tension or surprise. A joke that a performer thought was amusing when they scribbled it in a notebook might go down awkwardly with the crowd on a bad night, while an offhand remark to a heckler might land pleasingly. Practice is only part of a good performance, well-made argument or astute observation. Delivery matters, and so does having a safe space in which to do it, one where the arbiters of what is good and bad are those present, rather than competitive offence takers elsewhere. As someone who has performed hundreds of shows of, I'll admit, drastically varying quality, I know what it's like to blurt something out in the heat of a moment on stage and regret it. Kidding about finding joy in a relative's passing and taking solace from a tidy inheritance won't, from experience, make everyone titter. That doesn't mean that it can't touch a note of truth about humanity or inappropriateness. Nor does me saying that mean that I am suggesting it's the way that everyone should feel. Like satire, stand-up comedy means understanding what's being said and how it's delivered. You can laugh at an attitude and not take everything literally. It is hard to argue when context is lost, emotions are high, or what's right and wrong is decided through screens by anonymous strangers. Performance is part of a process, and when trying to find what's funny in a situation, performers must be allowed to get close to the line, or even sometimes stray beyond it, without fearing for their career. If not, comedians, writers and critics will come to avoid subjects such as race, religion and gender that are deemed more trouble than they're worth. While my gag about a relative's death was perhaps in poor taste, the demise of our ability to joke about the difficult, thorny and the daft, to snigger at our ridiculous, unserious preposterousness, would be anything but a laughing matter.
very lovely essays there from Sophie Grove and Nick Moniz. And now a little bit of self-promotion. I also wrote an essay for the second Monocle Companion. I was talking about the joys of radio, of course. I was driving through the Dolomites recently as I idly flicked through the local radio stations on the dial of my rented car. I knew that the road was taking me somewhere new and unexpected, but maybe I didn't consider that the radio might do the same. There was an 80s earworm from the Italian chanteuse Marcella Bella called Nell'Aria on Radio Dolomiti from Trento and plenty of uplifting but unremarkable schlager, a schmaltzy brand of German sing-along pop, to see me through the winding roads and mountain passes of northern Italy. I know that many people plump for an available playlist, a trusty album or an unthinking algorithm to recommend a song they might like. But somehow this doesn't quite qualify as a sense of discovery to me. Spotify's suggestions might be the scientific conclusion of what people like me might like, but even that logic rings a little hollow. We would all like to think of ourselves as more than the sum of clicks, listening habits or data scrounged from how we behave online. Less profound, perhaps, but these discoveries also lack a sense of place that is often coupled with an experience with which they can be recalled. This said, I'm also a huge fan of spending a relaxing sunny morning at home listening to the reassuring DJ selecting some songs and offering a story, tidbits or a tease. In every city I visit, I travel the streets and make my way along the FM dial to see where it might take me. That sonic journey brings me into the lives and loves of the people who call that place home. I may not always know the language of the presenter, if they are not speaking Portuguese or English, or the specifics of the scandal they are discussing, but it offers me a way in at least. An example, on a recent trip to Warsaw, I realized that the Poles have an unexpected penchant for Italo Disco, and how 89.7 Nova Brasil FM in São Paulo, my hometown, is the go-to for homegrown grooves from Gilberto Gil to Marisa Monge. If the cab driver at São Paulo's Guarulhos Airport has it on, I know I'm in good hands. I'm in for a good day. Another trusty go-to, Radio Nova in Paris, a place of discovery for new and niche French artists. And if you listen to my recommendations on Monaco 24, you will know that I'm partial to a little Parisian pop. So if you're still tuned in, you'll be wondering what my point is. As well as the open question of whether the internet should be dictating our tastes, the global radio station market is expected to grow in 2022 to $72.7 billion, 69.8 billion euros. In Brazil, for example, which celebrated its first radio transmission a hundred years ago, a whopping 83% of people tune in to at least one radio broadcast in the past three months. And radio advertising revenues are climbing too, up by 31%. My decentry-old form of media still have something to teach us. The good numbers don't stop there either. In the third quarter of 2022, the UK commercial radio industry has had its most successful period, 
according to the latest audience figures from the official source, Radio Joint Audience Research. This is not to say that Spotify can't be useful or create a half-decent playlist. It most certainly can. But like so many computer-generated outcomes these days, it can deliver a lot of things, but not a human touch. The idea that a hip-hop enthusiast might also love blues, Debussy and an embarrassing back catalogue of guilty pleasures is anathema. If my music choices depended on the streaming services, I would be trapped in a 90s Eurodance loop for eternity. Not necessarily bad for me, but perhaps a too narrow view of the world. This is only the musical side of what makes radio such a powerful and persuasive medium too. Then there's the news, talk and commentary. Now while the tremendous success of podcasting has brought the medium to a wide and wonderful audience, there's still a place for the discipline and durability of what happens live, whether that's a sporting fixture, election result or a natural disaster. Radio is resilient, reactive and still has reach. It can also be funny when things go wrong. There are countless examples, but I'm thinking of the time when Monaco's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, interviewed a representative from the Menton Lemon Festival on air on Monaco 24. It didn't take long to realize that she spoke no English, but he persisted with a marble plaque. Life gave him lemons that day, and the result was anything but bitter. More in the way of anecdote than proof, my grandfather, you can call him Ilton, takes a portable radio wherever he goes. When his football team, sport club Corinthians Paulista, is playing, he's glued to the radio. Even if he could watch the match on TV, he insists that it's not the same. And it's not just when we're winning or wending our way somewhere that radio packs its punch. During the pandemic, many people flocked back to trusted news sources, sought company from DJs or turned up the music to drown out the bad news. Despite the charm of its hosts, radio is expensive to run, time-consuming and arduous, but the result is something that would all be poorer without. My hope that since video didn't kill the radio star, nothing will. For Monaco, I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And remember, the Monaco Companion is out now. Cultural journals have been a staple of European life for centuries, variously combining criticism with theory and philosophy, literature with political analysis. They see their role as a driver of cultural and political debate. But their association with academia and small print runs means that their impact is limited and that their survival is constantly under threat. Monaco's Alexei Korolev explores how Europe's cultural journals are faring in times of war and financial crisis. In the dying days of the Soviet Union, an extraordinary thing happened. As censorship crumbled, scores of previously banned novels, poems and political essays were published in literary and academic magazines. Suddenly, these specialist and niche publications turned into popular reading, and soon the regime was dead. There may not have been a direct link between the two, but in much of the rest of Europe, Cultural journals have played a similar role, that of the truth-sayer. Basically, I think cultural journals always had two functions. 
the first would be picking up uh, current trends and developments in, in cultural and intellectual life and channeling them into a broader uh, public sphere or some sort of Gegenöffentlichkeit, so a counter-public sphere. And uh, the second uh, function, equally important, uh, that it constitutes some sort of collective memory, which is transcending the case. Andrea Zedebauer is one of the editors of Vespernest, an Austrian literary magazine that started life in 1969. She walks me through a recent issue. We start here uh, with a text by an Austrian intellectual called Wolfgang Miller Funk, who is, so to say, trying to grasp the concept of the Austrian neutrality. When we started the issue, then Sweden and Finland just had decided to be member of NATO. We have a, a, a piece on art forgery. Then there is a, a piece by two investigative journalists, Andrei Soldatov and Irina Borogan, on why Russia is presented as a peaceful empire, basically in the textbooks, Soviet textbooks. And we have a piece on Hannah Arendt and her concept of truth. Yes, and we had a conversation about Orson Welles' famous film F for, for Fake. This we do have in the, in the issue too. So it is uh, actually, just from this uh, brief description, it is very current. It's something that yes. most people would relate to. But then on the other hand, a magazine such as yours is a very, very niche product. I mean, if you stop someone right here in this street, probably they wouldn't know it. So their influence and their role in that sense is very limited, isn't it? Yes, it is. But this is why I said they are, so to say, channeling those trends into a bigger public sphere, which means that bigger media, dailies, weeklies, they are picking up debates which have their origin or have been started. And there are a lot of examples in, in the past that, so to say, an, a new idea started in a, in a small magazine. And then it, so to say, made its way into a broader public because they are detecting trends earlier. But sometimes the mainstream media don't listen, something that Reika Kinga-Pop knows well. She's the editor-in-chief of Eurozine, an organization based in Vienna that unites more than 100 titles from across Europe. She uses the war in Ukraine as an example. Eurozine happens to have a, a very strong focus since its inception on Eastern Europe and former Eastern Bloc countries. So for us, these initial sentences about how this hasn't happened since the Second World War, where some of us were really burying our faces in our palms, because these issues have been on our radar. We had the colleagues to remind us that this war since 2014 had been ongoing and we mustn't forget about this. And they had been pleading and asking and arguing and sometimes screaming, rightfully so, that, that the European community doesn't fully forget about this. So the layer of publicity that was alert and immediately clocking around, that was culture journals and specialist publications. Despite their central place in European history, most cultural journals subsist on funding. And Reika Kinga-Pop thinks that's only fair. Because I don't really view, for instance, EU funding or state funding as a favor extended by the Kaiser. This kind of funding you get because you do public interest work. At the same time, I also think that we really need to rethink the model of public service because we have a sort of 20th century idea of public interest or, or public service in media and in information, which 
hasn't really adjusted to the reality of right now. So if we want to come up with a public service model that doesn't just enforce a status quo, then we have to pledge specific attention to small and mid-scale, regional, local, niche, specialist media, including cultural journals, but also local journalism, without which we see gigantic political breakdowns. So what's the future of the thick European journal? In a Europe spooked by war and economic uncertainty, will it retain its role as a moral and cultural beacon? A last word to Andrea Zedebauer at the Vespernes magazine. Oh, of course, I will. <laughs> I, I want to advocate for that they will keep up their role. One specific characteristic of, of cultural journals is probably their obstinacy or their stubbornness. They know all crises, economic crises, shutdowns. So in a way, you know, they pick up strategies and practices from a lot of generations, which means that they are somehow hard to kill. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Adam Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can always listen again at monocle.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And, of course, you can also subscribe to Monocle magazine too. Before we go, a little song for you. It's a very special one for me. And in fact, it inspires my essay on the power of radio. It is, of course, Marcella Bella, Nell'Aria. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.